But before I get into the word with you this morning, I just want to share a couple of things with you um, that are exciting, that are going on through the body here, that um, I've always been reluctant to share these things, but I know that I could use prayer, and I don't want to be um, reluctant. And it's kind of one of those things where you don't want to let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, but I also just know that I need prayer for this new endeavor that God has called me to. Um, God has really given us a unique opportunity here at Redeemer to be overseeing church planting for the Acts 29 network and for the Crossway Chapel church planting network. Uh, I've just answered a call to sit on the board of both of those networks and to start overseeing assessment of church planters. And specifically, my role is going to be pastors who are beat up and burned out in ministry, kind of being the guy who speaks life into them and, and shepherds them back to a healthy place. That's been something that's been on my heart for a long time. Most of the people that I entered into ministry with haven't stayed in ministry, and, and I want to see people run the course for the long haul and be able to be refreshed. And um, boy, the idea that pastoral ministry can pull people away from walking with Jesus is something that's just always broken my heart. So now God has raised up an opportunity for me to, to have a role on a growing, thriving church planning network to kind of oversee um, some pieces of that. So next Sunday, I'll be speaking at a church that uh, we assessed and we helped plant out in Colorado. And then I'll be speaking at a church plant that we also helped plant Sunday night. And um, then I'm going to be speaking at a church planting conference next Monday through Wednesday. So please keep us in prayer. Um, the reason that I, I wanted to share with this is because God has enabled us to contribute in a major way to missions and seeing healthy, reproducible churches around the world. And, and I look at the health that's taken place here over the last year. And don't you want to see that replicated in other churches that are struggling? You know, to just see the, the breath of God that's been blown into this place and just his ruach coming and, and ruling and reigning in this place. And, and I want to see that um, both locally and globally. Um, I also just wanted to share it to let you know that my heart is always going to be here for the local church. My focus will always be here, be here for the body of Redeemer Fellowship. But I desire to see our vision and mission expand beyond the walls of this church and to have a global impact of the church. So I take my role very seriously. I see it as a stewardship. And I want to thank you for freeing me up to be able to do that. So um, thank you very, very much. And I, I'm just going to lift it up in prayer. And um, um, God, I just pray um, that it, as this role expands, um, that I wouldn't be an arrogant fool like so many um, who um, try to step into to roles to serve your church um, abroad, Lord. I just pray that there would be deep humility. Um, Lord, I, I pray for the things that you've put on Pastor Daniel's heart as he's approaching, um, uh, praying about planting here on the shore and having another Redeemer. Um, gosh, you've been so good to us. Thank you for your goodness. We pray that as we go to your scriptures now, that it would just lock us in on the mission that you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. So all of this sort of blends into um, the two-week sermon series that we're going to be beginning right now. As we begin this year, it's healthy to look at our mission and vision together. This has been a tremendous year of growth, 
salvations, baptisms, new relationships, building a culture, developing leaders, and learning to live together in gospel community. And it's critical that we take time to actually define our mission and vision so that we don't drift from it. Like it says in Hebrews 2.1, pay closer attention to that which you have already learned, lest you drift away. And we don't want to see mission drift. Any church that cannot articulate its mission does not really know what it stands for. And if they can't define their mission, they will drift from that mission. That's a fact. There's, there's no way around that. So when it comes to the ability to define our mission and our vision, it's not enough for me to be able to do it. It's not enough for the elders of the church to be able to stand up here and do it. It's not a shared mission until we can share it as a body of believers committed to one another and committed to a mutually shared, agreed-upon mission. So our mission statement is very, very simple, and I'll explain more about that in a moment. But just to read it and share it with anybody who may be in the dark, it's up here behind me. Our mission is to love God, make disciples of Jesus and plant gospel-centered churches. Um, It's pretty simple, as it should be, because Christianity can get way too complex, and it should be simple, biblical, and avoiding the trappings of complexity and confusion, because our God is not a God of confusion. I used to work for this company where I would actually meet with businesses and try to get them to articulate their mission and vision and shared commitments and core values, and they would actually pay me to come in and sit with them and do this. And people would come up with these intricate, complex mission statements, and I would often think, there's no way that you're even gonna remember that after you walk out the door. So how do you expect your company to remember this? And how is it supposed to be a guiding force for your company? And I saw many churches come in during that time and do the same exact thing while I was there. And I would meet with these pastors and they would have these verbose, complex statements and I couldn't help but wonder, what are you even doing? Why are you doing this? And perhaps the most troubling thing that I saw during that time is that churches think that they are the ones that are supposed to come up with their mission and vision. Look, Jesus is the one who defines the church. Jesus is the one who purchased the church. Jesus is the head of the church. And Jesus should be able to and already has define the mission of the church, not us. It's not up to us to define what Jesus' bride is supposed to be doing. Um, We don't need to create a mission because Jesus already gave the church a great commission. And any other mission other than the great one that Jesus gave us will not be great because it's not the mission that Jesus died for to purchase for his church. And we don't have to wonder what that mission looks like because Jesus clearly defined it when he gave us a great commandment. And any other commandment that is our base will be something less than the great one that Jesus gave his life and died for. So in reality, the mission of the church should simply be just a mathematical equation, great commission, plus great commandment equals our mission. There could be different language that we use that to contextualize it and make sure that it's palpable to a multivaried church culture. But even the language, if it differs, the idea should be the same. It should be simple, biblical, and radically defined by Jesus. So again, our mission clearly stated is to love God, make disciples of Jesus, 
and plant gospel-centered churches. And now that I've defined it, we're going to go to the scriptures to explain it and see how it's relevant to our everyday life and not just an organizational speech that I'm giving you guys and relevant to our walk with Jesus. We're going to look at a passage that spells it out quite clearly, and over the next couple of weeks, we're going to examine what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves, aka the Great Commission, and what it means to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, the Great Commandment. So if you haven't turned already with me, please turn to Luke chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 25, and it says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, meaning Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So as our passage opens up, there's this man who comes to Jesus, and he asks him to boil down the will of God into one clearly defined purpose statement. And that's something that was actually really popular with rabbis at the time. There was this famous story where somebody came up to the rabbi Hillel, who lived about 110 B.C., and the man said to Hillel, I want you to summarize the entire law while standing on one foot. And Hillel famously answered him, That which is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow man. That is the whole Torah. The rest is explanation. Go and learn it. I have to say, that's pretty impressive, right? He, he took a pretty good crack at it. And if people nailed down that one concept the world would probably be a whole lot better of a place. But then again, if the world could nail down that one concept, we wouldn't be in need of a Savior, would we? Or we wouldn't be in need of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, to assist us where we fall short of being able to carry out that one commandment. Or we wouldn't be in need of a righteous one to fulfill the law where we fell short of it. Or we wouldn't need a Savior to credit alien righteousness to our account because we cannot have righteousness in and of ourselves. But we do need all of those things. And that's why Jesus' answer is infinitely more brilliant than Hillel, even if Hillel took a really good crack at it. And even though Hillel's answer has a certain appearance of wisdom, according to the wisdom of this world, the reason we seek to answer questions and teach texts with a gospel-centered interpretation in mind is because Jesus always answered questions with a gospel-centered interpretation in mind. Anything less than that is insufficient. Anything less than that is going to be man-centered. Anything less than that makes too much of man and not enough of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. So Jesus takes time to actually flip the script on this guy, and he lets him answer his own question. Look with me at verses 26 and 27. It says, and he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Not that the question is not all that important, because it really is. Jesus is not trying to point out to the man that he's asking an unimportant question or a stupid question in any way. It's really a critical question. I mean, realizing when you really, really get to see that this life is a vapor and it's here today and it's gone tomorrow, you should be forced to ask eternally significant questions. Most questions that people ask are far less significant than the one that the lawyer asked Jesus that day. In fact, this really is the question 
You know, it's not just a important question. This is the important question. If we're not asking this, get this. You could know the answer to every other question that's ever been asked in the history of the world, and it would be less important than knowing the answer to this one question. Because eternally, you would still be in a load of trouble if you knew all knowledge but didn't know how to answer this question that was asked to Jesus that day. The reason that Jesus draws this out of the man rather than just answering the question directly is to point out to the man that he already knew the answer a lot more clearly than he probably thought that he did. Like I said, knowing the mission and purpose of God is not supposed to be complex or difficult. You know, even Hillel's answer that I gave earlier at least has some similar flavor to it. And really, all this encounter is is an exchange about understanding and applying the first commandment that was given to Moses. The reason that it's not complex is because God didn't want it to be complex. Somebody once asked Bertrand Russell, the famous agnostic scientist, if God is real, what will you say to him when you see him in heaven? And Russell's answer was, Sir, if you were in fact real, why did you go to such great lengths to disguise yourself? Uh, Unfortunately for Mr. Russell, he chose to miss what was simple and right in front of him in favor of a much more complex answer that steered him away from truth. So his entire presupposition is completely off base here. The man was one of the greatest scientific minds in all of history, yet through the cultivation of all of his mental discipline, the idea of a benevolent creator became further and further obscure. When Psalm 19 makes it pretty clear that we only need to observe the cosmos to be able to arrive at the conclusion that there is in fact a benevolent creator, and the revealed word of God and the revelation of the Son of God should reveal his will of himself. God incarnate can ask this man this profound question because though it's profound, he didn't want it to be complex or complicated. But living it out and knowing the answer are a completely different story. And that's where Jesus is going to begin to apply the gospel into this man's life. He's not interested in the summary of the content that religious folks claim to know about God. As the great author J.I. Packer said in a preface to Knowing God, he said, you can know a ton about God but have never known the God of the universe. So Jesus begins to drive deep into this man's heart to expose his heart and his refusal to submit to gospel truth and covering it up with this thin veneer of religion acting like he understood gospel truth. We simply cannot understand the mission of God or the will of God apart from embracing and drilling deep into the gospel of God. And that's what Jesus is trying to get across to this man. And interestingly enough, Jesus actually tells the guy that he nailed the answer. Look at verses 28 and 29. He says, And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So let's look at the guy's answer. It's basic, but it's beautiful. He breaks down eternal life into two deep but very basic truths. Knowing and loving God and knowing and loving our neighbor who is created in the Imago Dei in the image of God. And maybe you can feel like this answer is not quite robust enough, but notice that Jesus does not take any issue with this guy's answer. 
He actually tells the man, you've answered the question well. He tells the guy, you nailed the answer to the question, but the man seeks to self-justify, according to verse 29. The man plays his hand right there. You can see what he's really getting at when you look at verse 29. He's not looking for truth. He's certainly not looking to walk in or submit to biblical truth. He's looking to make himself look good. Friends, please get this. God is passionate for his own glory. Not making us look good so we can go on being passionate about our own glory. You get that? God is passionate about glorifying himself, not in making you look good so that you can live a life glorifying yourself, which is what the man's intention was right here. We have to start with that understanding if we're ever going to arrive at Christ's mission for the church. Jesus does not play around with folks who seek to self-justify or use phony religion as an excuse to permit themselves from not obeying the clear purposes of God. He wasn't interested in the garden when he graciously calls out Adam and Eve and says, where are you? And then he sees their attempt to self-justify and he cuts right through it like a hot knife through butter. He's not interested in going there with Job as he spends the middle 38 chapters of the book of Job seeking to self-justify either. And he's not interested in going there with this guy either. We can either seek to self-justify and lay the claim of our righteousness on our own merit of a laundry list of good deeds and attempt to make ourselves look and seem more impressive because that's really what people are doing when they give you the list of all of the things that you should be impressed with about them, isn't it? Have you ever sat with somebody who, as Luke says here, is seeking to justify themselves and walked away thinking, Wow, that is one impressive human being. I esteem them with great honor, and I want to be more like them because of the awesome way that they painted a self-portrait of themselves right before my very eyes and paid homage to their true awesomeness. I mean, we, don't, we don't think about that. We don't think that way. We don't esteem people who seek to justify themselves. We realize that it's whacked. We realize that it doesn't pass the smell test when we see it. So why do people do it? We can either justify ourselves with a thin, pretentious veneer of delusional self-righteousness, or we can trust in the God who justifies and takes away our unrighteousness and replaces it with alien righteousness that is not of ourselves belonging to the perfection of Jesus Christ. Why do people who know that as a theological truth continue to choose the self-justification route? So Jesus tells the lawyer a story that basically has two versions of himself and then a very different example to radically juxtapose against who he is to expose his religious, phony self-justification. Look with me starting in verse 30. It says, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road. When he saw him, he passed by the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came... 
to the place where he saw him, pass by the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion, and he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and there he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day he took two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So Jesus starts off by telling this story of this hurting man who is clearly in pain and in need of help. And this man, the story is not just about that man. That man is supposed to be a picture of every man apart from Christ who is hurting and in need of the love that can only come from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he talks about this priest that observes a man in need and does nothing. He steps over him on his way to go and do more religion. And then he tells about a Levite who sees and observes this man in pain and does nothing, but steps over him on his way to go do more religion. Make no mistake about it, friends. Jesus picks these two men for a reason. They are examples of people who have progressed quite far in ministry. And they are prime examples of people who know a lot of facts about God and a lot of facts about God's word, but they couldn't tell you a thing about the person or the heart of God because they missed it. In other words, Jesus is giving the lawyer two shining examples of himself to look at in the mirror. And the conclusion with both men is the same. They were both too busy being religious to be able to care about people who were in need of the gospel. They were too busy doing business for God that they were oblivious to the heart of God. It reminds me of one of my favorite lines in any movie ever. I don't know if there's any Shawshank Redemption fans out there. But I love it when Red says, either you get busy living or you get busy dying. These two men are a picture of two men who are getting busy dying. Yet they're so busy thinking that they were busy living that they didn't even realize how busy they were dying. And they're too busy thinking that they're living to notice that they're literally stepping over somebody who was dying, somebody who God had a purpose for to see that person get busy living. But they completely missed it because they were immune to the heart of God. Wow, is this passage relevant in modern day evangelicalism? One of my biggest turnoffs in the church today in the modern programmatic structures that we see is the premium that is placed on busy. When a church falls into this, they are failing to allow Jesus to define the mission for his very own church, the church that Revelation calls his bride. They're not even letting the husband be able to define the mission for his own wife that he purchased in his blood. They're not heeding passages like this where Jesus warns them against the pitfalls of distraction to mission. Please get this. If you get nothing else, if you hear nothing else in the rant that I'm giving, please get this. Busyness does not equal gospel mission. Busyness does not equal gospel mission. Somebody can be completely immersed in busyness of the church and completely miss the heart of God and therefore be building on a completely different foundation than the mission of God the whole time. Some of the people I've known who are the busiest in doing stuff for God would not know the Holy Spirit if he jumped up and bit them. And it's evident by the foul spirit that they have as they do ministry 
for Jesus. There's something leading them, but it certainly ain't the ghost. That's for sure. And you're going to see a shining example of that when we finish out the passage next week. That people who operate out of self-centered busyness rather than a spirit-filled leading, there's this common thread with these folks, folks that they're usually just so eager to tell you everything that they're doing for the kingdom because they're not getting the validation that they seek from the spirit. So they seek it from the approval of man and they're willing to step over hurting people in the process to get the approval that they're addicted to because they're not getting it from Jesus. And when they do it, what Jesus says is, congratulations, you just received your reward in full. You know that look that we gave you when you just rattled off all the things you're doing for God and we were like, wow, that's impressive. Hope you enjoyed it because you just cashed in all your eternal chips and that's what you get instead. And look, man, churches need to stop catering to these people because churches have created monsters by catering to these people. And if you think I'm being too strong, go read John chapter 6 where He's saying, look, this is what it's all about. Are you here to drink my blood and to eat of my flesh or not? And if you're not, peace. I call it Jesus' assisted leaving ministry. (laughs) Assisted living is great, but Jesus seems to hold a high priority on assisted leaving. And man, every once in a while, the church needs a good message to just say, look, if this is what you're looking for, if you're here for your own self-aggrandizement, leave. Nobody's keeeping you here. It's, you're not benefiting yourself. You're not benefiting the kingdom. All you're doing is sowing to your flesh, and you're going to reap the whirlwind as a result. And then Jesus uses this absurd example to show someone who is in line, what is known as in Latin, the missio dei, or the mission of God. He talks about a Samaritan. And I could get into how scandalous the example of a Samaritan would be to an observant religious Jew. And you know what? So much has been said about that over the last 20 or 30 years. But in my opinion, all of the stuff that goes into this big exegetical study of Samaritans versus Jewish religious people misses the whole point and obscures the point of the text. Jesus is not bringing this guy up purely for shock value. Although it would have had shock value and it certainly would have been shocking, Jesus uses this awesome example, get this, to show that those who are living out the mission of God according to Jesus are not the ones who are on the religiosity all-star team, but the ones who love mercy and who love the gospel and who love those who are cut off from the mercy of God. Look with me at verses 36 and 37. He says, which of these do you think proved to be the neighbor of the man who fell amongst the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, go and be busy and self-justify yourself and tell everybody all the stuff that you do for the church so that they'll all pat you on the back and tell you you're awesome because you don't have any self-confidence and you look for it in the approval of others. (laughs) Come on, give me a break. Give me a break. He says, Look what this guy did. Go and do likewise. It's not supposed to be that complicated. Jesus knows that we're really complicated folks, so we could take the most complicated thing and turn it into a quadratic equation, and that's not the way that the Bible is supposed to be written. 
It was written to fishermen. It was written to basic people, and he wants them to be able to understand the heart of God and not go searching for it like a needle in a haystack. It's pretty interesting that when we allow Jesus to define his mission, a lot of the junk of churchianity is completely stripped away. Guys, churchianity is not the gospel. You got that? Churchianity is not the gospel. Gospel Christianity flows upstream against cultural churchianity. When you see churchianity and you see the gospel, the gospel has to be flowing against that and saying, I will not stand for this. I'm going to flow upstream as a testimony to the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ and not get suckered into what the culture said that I'm supposed to get suckered into because I'm a Christian. When we allow Jesus to define his mission, it can really shine a light on how much churches veer away from mission. The self-centered religion demonstrated by the priest and the Levite is completely antithetical to the call of the gospel. That's the point of this text. It's a very basic text. When I visualize this passage, I imagine like a, like a Chinese buffet, right? And I, and I picture religious people just being too busy, just, I'm just going to consume more religious goods, and mm, that's tasty, and I'm going to complain about that one, but I'm still going to eat four helpings. Sorry. <laughs> that was funny, though. Oh. I just picture people just picking up religious goods and shoveling them down their gullet, not even looking to see what they taste like, rather than taking the gospel opportunities that God's putting right in front of their face. That's the point of the text. He's saying, like, you're so busy going down this road to Jericho, and here's this man that's just laying here, that all it would take is for you to just pick him up, bandage this man who got, you don't have to go looking around for anything crazy. You're stepping over what God has put right in front of you. Consumerism is not the mission that God died to purchase for his church, folks. We have to get that. It's so easy to fall into, but when we allow Jesus to define his mission, it calls us to repent of holding the American dream as higher than the gospel. Jesus says right here that the American dream is stupid. <laughs> One thing should be really, really clear is the example that Jesus uses to explain what, what love is was actually supposed to, it, it's supposed to look like love that costs us something and puts its own needs as subservient to be able to invest in others. The bottom line is you cannot live out God's purpose if you're not investing in others and are not willing for love to cost you anything. That's the whole point that he's trying to speak to this lawyer. You cannot live out God's purpose if you're not investing in others and are not willing to allow love to cost you anything. I have zero patience left for people who call themselves Christians and sit in churches and are not willing to have a walk that costs them anything. People like that have been catered to for way too long, and we need a non-catering ministry for those folks. It's not good for them. It's not good for the church and they're going to reap the whirlwind. So we do, no, we do them no favors if we don't do what God instructed Ezekiel to do, to be the watchman who stands on the tower and says danger is imminent if you continue to choose to live this way. When we allow Jesus to define his mission, we can't really self-justify any longer either, which is great because it plunges us deep into the heart of the gospel, which plunges us deep into the heart of God himself 
each of us has to decide whether we're going to allow Jesus the right to define the mission for his own bride, or we have to embrace the fact that we're willingly choosing another alternative, a lesser mission than the one that was beautifully and clearly articulated by Jesus himself. So as we close, I want to give you five application points of allowing Jesus to define Redeemer's mission. Part one, loving our neighbors ourselves. These are up behind me for any note takers. Number one is we should not feel the need to justify our way, our biblical responsibility through phony religiosity. The church should be a place where you could just come and be the mess that you are and allow the Holy Spirit to begin to sanctify that mess out of you. But throwing a veneer over it and pretending it's not there doesn't serve you or anybody else. Number two is we should fight to trust in the justification that comes from Jesus rather than the justification that comes from self that will always leave us wanting. And self-justification is like Twinkies for the soul. You know, it'll go down for a minute and, and it might even taste rich and creamy, but you're just going to be hungry again in 30 seconds and just be stuffing more Twinkies down your gullet, so you don't want that. Um, number three is Jesus is more concerned about gospel-centered motivations of the heart than pious-looking actions. And that's what you have here. You have a priest and a Levite, and I'm sure they looked very clean and very pristine, and I'm sure that they knew all their Bible verses and they could say all the right things. And Jesus' conclusion is, which one did the will of God, not them? Number four is a busy religious life does not equal an obedient Christian life. That's the biggie for you to walk away with this morning. Number five, and the last one, is the church's mission cannot be in line with the mission of God without pouring out that life as a vessel of mercy and gospel intentionality in the lives of others. That's the only way that a church can have, and it can't just be words on a screen, folks. It's got to be a band of missionaries who are committed to say, let's allow this to cost us something. It costs Jesus everything, and he was willing so let us follow in the example of our Savior and have a faith with cost, not so that we can earn anything because Jesus earned it for us fully already and we can never earn it, but those who have been made righteous by Jesus' sacrifice that are now willing to invest and sacrifice for the sake of others. Jesus set the example of that. Next week, we're going to be looking at the other half of the mission as outlined by Jesus, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you know what's interesting with that? I'll close with this thought. You would think that that should come first, right? You know, we should be talking about loving the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength before loving your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus deals with it in a different order in the passage. And though it sounds spiritual to say that that part should come first, it's really not as spiritual as it sounds because there's something that predates even all of that. Before we can embrace the reality of loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, we have to embrace the fact that Jesus Christ loved you with the love of God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that is what we celebrate when we go to communion, that we can actually live out the mission of God as the body of Christ because God allowed his body to be broken and came to show us what it looked like to live out the mission of God. So let's think about that and meditate on that as Pastor Tim leads us into a time of communion. Jesus, I, I pray that as we go to communion, that our hearts would be reflective on all that you've done to make it possible.
to partake of your body and your blood and to know the washing that comes by being in you, our only hope of glory. In Jesus' name, amen.